Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by ThinkSmart, makers of TAP, the ThinkSmart automation platform. TAP lets you digitize, standardize, optimize, and automate any legal process. Episode 55, which you're about to hear, is the first of two episodes with our distinguished guests. Tune into episode 56 for the continuation of this insightful discussion. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guests hold leadership roles in CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium. Within CLOCK, leaders of some of the largest law departments in the U.S. are coming together to solidify and implement legal operations standards in an effort to solve challenges in their ecosystems. Joining me today are the Chief of Staff to the General Counsel and Senior Director of Global Legal Operations at Yahoo, Jeff Frankie, and the VP and Deputy General Counsel at Cisco, Steve Harmon. Welcome, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Steve, let's start with you. What personal strengths or habits have allowed you to successfully transition to a role focused on legal operations? Well, I began my legal career practicing intellectual property law in the licensing space. So as a technology licensing lawyer, but prior to that, my undergraduate education was in electrical engineering and information systems with a focus on database theory. So having the technical background coupled with my traditional legal background has left me, I believe, in a, in a unique position to bridge the two worlds between operations and traditional legal practice. Anything that's been surprising to you in that transition? Anything that you weren't expecting to encounter that you have? On a somewhat, I guess, humorous level, I, I was surprised at how how lawyers struggle to use technology, even technologies that they use every day. Things like Microsoft Word. Lawyers don't even use Microsoft Suite very efficiently. And so it, that caught me off guard. We still hear the stories about lawyers who have their emails printed, which is somewhat shocking. Jeff, any reflections on your transition into legal operations that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think on a personal level, your question was kind of geared towards some aspects of of who I am. And I, I think that there are a few key pieces to that. You know, I, I think it's obviously really important to be well organized and to be able to manage multiple threads at one point in time. Legal operations is a newer discipline, but it has like about 12 core competencies from finance to vendor management to team building. So you, you've really got to manage a lot of different um, issues at the same time and, and manage them well. The ability to think big picture, you know, at times as a chief of staff, you're working on strategy kinds of issues. Um, and other times, as Steve identified, you know, with technology or other tasks, you have to be really detail-oriented, presentations for the for the CEO and, and CFO. I think it's really important to be resilient. The role that Steve and I have is one that oftentimes it's a challenge for the lawyers on the hallway to, to get along with in the sense that they're used to owning their own space and having someone come in and, and start to participate in things like the selection of outside counsel, negotiating rates, negotiating agreements. That doesn't always, doesn't play favorably at the outset. And so there's a real need to, to be resilient because there's a lot of strong pushback 
I think the parallel to that is is having really good EQ. You need to deal with a lot of different types of people, HR, finance, technology people, the lawyers on the team, outside counsel, et cetera. So, so having really good EQ is, is important. And the last one, I think one of the most important is there's a line somewhere between being highly determined and being a pit bull. I think the most successful people in this role have a very similar personality. None of them are shrinking violets and in situations that either involve conflict or just really require you to stand your ground. There's a different personality type here usually that succeeds than, than might in a lot of other roles. Some great insight. At this point in legal operations, are we seeing people come up through the ranks, people that have been in legal operations for a solid part of their career and are able to get to the next level? Or is it still too young to see that transition where most of the folks coming into legal operations are coming from other areas of, of the legal services space? I think it depends on what kind of role you're talking about. I think for the leadership positions, it's still a relatively nascent discipline and, and function. And a lot of the people are still making transition from roles in finance uh, to some extent, roles in IT, but but mostly from other legal roles. I think a lot of the most successful individuals in this role have the ability to understand the legal department in a way that is based upon having practiced law. The majority of the people are coming from other roles rather than, than coming up through the ranks. At CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, we've spent a lot of time looking at the maturation of the legal ops profession and the legal legal ops function within companies. And while there's a very broad spectrum, the vast majority of the companies, even very large companies, are still very much towards the beginning rather than the mature end. Steve actually represents a company that is is very much more at the mature end than the opposite. So, Steve, is that kind of consistent? Absolutely. That will change over time. We're starting to see people who begin their legal career with an eye towards someday working in an ops-related role. At this early stage, it's often people making migrations from either parallel professions or from traditional legal roles into the role almost as a matter of necessity or a matter of interest. But I think over time, we'll start to see this develop as a as an independent career path. And we're starting to see that at some of the, the law schools that we recruit from. There are efforts to train students with this skill set. And I think at some point, we will be blessed with the opportunity to work with people that have, have begun their career with an eye towards developing some of these core competencies. Great point. I know CLOCK has done a lot of work to define what is quote unquote legal operations and what things could be and you know what standards could be used in operating an effective legal operations group within an organization. Before we jump into CLOCK specifically, I'd like to ask a question around business development. A lot of our listeners are tuning in because they are lawyers, they are challenged with their business development responsibilities, and they want to hear from folks on the inside as to what they look for when they're evaluating either a law firm or a legal services organization, possibly for the first time or for a matter they're not typically going to that firm for. So Jeff, if I can start with you at Yahoo, what specifically, what do you look for in the legal services firms that you contract with, with the law firms that you establish an agreement with? 
As is the case with most questions in the legal field, the answer is it depends. For example, we're looking to solve for, say, IP litigation. We may be looking for a very specific set of expertise. We may be looking for whether or not that firm, that attorney has been before a particular judge. They spend a lot of time in the Eastern District. In other cases, if we're dealing, for example, with, say, coverage for procurement matters, we might be looking really for efficiency and the extent to which they've established relationships with third parties to drive efficient solutions, as well as whether they have, um, within their own internal organization, have figured out how to to leverage different types of resources at different expense levels to make it as inexpensive as we possibly can. Responsiveness is really important to us. Um, We want to know that law firms are listening. Quality is always a critical piece to the puzzle. It does, again, depend upon what kind of problem we're solving. Sometimes attention to detail and delivering a quality product in litigation, bet the company litigation, it means one thing. You know, if we're talking about, a, again, a, a procurement agreement for some not so important technology, in that context, obviously there's some level of quality that we're looking for, but but we're looking for someone who's going to pay attention to what our requirements are and deliver against that. I think we find a lot of times that law firms are overly risk averse. They don't take the time to really understand our business and or our business in that specific context. I think they oftentimes are focused too much on solving for the lawyer that they're working for in-house rather than paying attention to the larger opportunity before them. I can tell you that the vast majority of lawyers that we use here at Yahoo, they know they're counterparts within the company, but they don't know me. And as a result, they're not really taking the opportunity to see what other areas their firm might be able to solve for. You know, they might be focused on patents or IP litigation or media or whatnot. By failing to to connect with legal operations, they're staying really narrow. So those are some of the the big things. You know, the last one I would highlight, clearly rates continue to be an issue. We constantly look for opportunities to find the least expensive solution to a given problem. And and these days, sometimes that means taking the work not to law firms. We might go to LPOs. We might try to solve it through technology. We certainly have law firms and lawyers who we pay, you know, $1,500 an hour or more for. And there are definitely cases where those kinds of rates, hesitate to say, are justified, but, but you know, supply and demand dictates certain certain rates and, and we're good with that. But there are lots of other cases where firm structures are such that, you know, they're charging X number of dollars for partners of a certain number of years of experience. And, and there's really a miss between supply and demand there. And we might not consider a firm because they've already got a rate structure in place that's that's not really thoughtful. And I guess the last piece I'd say is we do pay attention to how our firms are spending their money in many cases. I know this is one where Steve will disagree with me on. I think he's got some really insightful thoughts here. But well, to a large extent, I don't really care how the law firm goes about running its business. If I see a firm that you know has marbled elevator walls with every particular tile of marble having an identification of the quarry that it came from, and, and I've been there. Or when I get bills submitted from outside counsel that include their renting a Corvette for their business travel, those things definitely get noticed. You know, at a minimum, there's a conversation associated with it, but at a maximum, it does influence how we think about the firm and how, how we might think about the next firm that we do business with. Strong comments and definitely heard rates, costs, responsiveness quality, the actual experience of the person. Jeff, do you actually write or communicate with the law firm's and or lawyers that are new to working with Yahoo about standards that are expected of them? Is there some kind of communication that would, say, introduce legal operations, set the stage as to how the working relationship 
how you and your group would prefer to work with that outside lawyer? Is that pretty much left up to the lawyer they're working with in-house? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The implied question um, in part there is, what is the scope and, and the ability of legal operations team at a given company to undertake that kind of action? You know, here at Yahoo, we have a relatively small team in total. We're about three people, three or four people that handle all legal operations battles. And realistically, I can't take the lead in meeting um, with all of them. We do have a billing and staffing policy that, that accompanies every one of our engagement letters. And it does give, I think, a pretty clear sense of what we're looking for. There's a narrative in there beyond the sort of do's and don'ts that highlights what we're looking for. But I think it's really incumbent on the law firms to reach out as much as I might like to. I, I just don't have the time and I don't always know in every case which firms are new. But I can tell you that when when firms and lawyers reach out to meet with me for coffee or, or to get on the phone, uh, I have never turned down that opportunity. In fact, I embrace it. The more I know about all of the different suppliers that provide corporate legal services to Yahoo, the better off I am and, and arguably the better off they are. And now a word from our episode sponsor. ThinkSmart is the fastest growing provider of business process automation software. The ThinkSmart automation platform, TAP, provides intuitive drag and drop smart forms and makes moving your paper-based workflows easy. TAP fully integrates with legacy systems, including e-signature offerings, DocuSign and Adobe Sign, your SSO, CRMS, contract management, and e-billing solutions. Get back to practicing law and making clients happy, not chasing paper. Operate more efficiently, cut costs, and save time with ThinkSmart. For more information, go to thinksmart.com was on with a clock member, a associate general counsel involved with legal operations. And he noted that they were working with more than 500 different uh, law firms and legal services providers a lot to manage. And obviously, if you're communicating with them and giving them some guidance, you know, I would hope that they would embrace that and, and take advantage of the fact that you've said, hey, this is how we'd like to work with your firm. I think there's strong benefit for taking advantage of those opportunities. I can tell you other folks we've interviewed, lawyers, client service team members for law firms, big firms have said that they've spent a lot more time now really talking to their clients about how they want to work with their firm, not just assuming that it's a certain way. Steve, you have what I'm sensing is a larger, more established from a time perspective, legal operations team. Can you reflect on any specifics that you've established for working with outside legal uh, service providers and law firms? Well, the primary focus that, that I'm looking for is a general understanding and appreciation by the firm of the fact that large corporate environments operate in an outcome-based world, right? We are measured just like all other business functions within our corporation. And those measurements are all outcome-based. We don't spend time measuring inputs, which has historically been the way that legal services have been marketed to clients like us. Successful outside lawyers focus on a real clear articulation of the desired outcome, what we're trying to accomplish, why we're engaging with the firm in the first place, and having just crystal clear clarity 
about that outcome so that we can have a meeting of the minds about the amount of resource and type of effort that we're going to put into working to achieve that outcome. Law firms that are particularly successful with us are very data-driven. They pitch to us not based on the curriculum vitae, the educational backgrounds of their lawyers or their relative experience number of years in practice. They focus on their success in dealing with similar types of issues and being able to analogize from their historical success and compare that to the challenges that we face that drove the original conversation. It's an area of opportunity for firms. Law firms have an enormous amount of data in their billing systems, in their institutional knowledge. And I think far too few firms lead with that information. I think that the firm that figures out a way to structure their pitches in a way that starts with a conversation we understand this conversation is about this particular issue, and we want you to know that at our firm, we have dealt with similar issues on similar occasions, and these are the outcomes and the relative probabilities of those outcomes that we expect to achieve here. Then we can come to agreement about what the proper structure is, what the ROI is for that engagement. Those are the key things that I'm looking for. That is very timely. We completed an interview with a partner at Holland and Hart. Her name is Chris Grohl. And she talked about for a project they had, and this was a project several years ago, they had tracked every task and the time it took, and they were able to establish a baseline for that particular type of matter. And since then, they've used that to define for clients. For each new client, they do something similar and they've created a way of tracking it. And they're able to go back to the client or go to a new client and say for similar clients that had a similar issue with similar level of complexity, we've had this outcome resulted in this outcome and it was done in this amount of time within this budget. Is that similar to what you're looking for from an outcomes-based solution? That's very much what we're looking for. If I can use a metaphor, when we decide that we want to go to lunch this afternoon, the simple question might be, what would you like for lunch? And the simple answer is steak. The answer to that question is full of nuance and stratification. You can have steak that's very quickly prepared and relatively simple, and, and there's a whole stratification of steak restaurants. And at the other end of the spectrum, you might have a multi-hour meal with a very elegant set of surroundings. But the point is, unless we get very, very particular about what our desired outcome is, we can have a mismatch of expectations and a mismatch of the effort that's applied to solving that problem. If you clearly articulate that today I would like a, a Philly cheesesteak sandwich, then we can agree on the right level of, of input that merit that outcome. And candidly, that allows me to free the law firm to use their best judgment about how to achieve that outcome. I don't have to spend my time as an operations professional second-guessing the distribution of, of chefs to prep cooks in that kitchen, so to speak. It's up to the firm to make their best allocation of resources. Similarly, the firm has the flexibility to take advantage of their own efficiencies. The outcome is what, I, what I'm concerned about. The amount of inputs, whether over or above the norm, really doesn't matter to me in that scenario. The same sort of thing applies in litigation. The definition of what it means to win in litigation is very fact dependent. Winning may be through the final level of, of appeal or winning may be making sure that this particular dispute 
is not discussed in the press. Or winning may be that we slow play the conversation and give opportunities for other alternative resolution to occur. Even setting out with with something as simple as we've been sued, we need to defend this suit. Most modern law firms spend far too little time understanding the desired outcome of the client. And by doing so, that's when you get into these unpleasant conversations around mismatch of expectations on the cost. Great points. Two questions on that. My assumption is when you're looking to utilize a firm, a lawyer within a firm, a partner within a firm, that you are likely asking for a very specific either alternative fee arrangement or some kind of outcomes-based contracting arrangement. Is that accurate? We certainly have a strong preference for alternative arrangements that take into consideration this outcome-based approach. I should emphasize that those outcome-based approaches are designed to leave upside there for the firm as well. It's not our goal to undercut the firm's ability to provide services. It's our goal to clearly articulate our requirements such that the firm doesn't overinvest in a particular area or in a particular exchange. Your assumption is correct. We're looking for outside lawyers to have a conversation with us that's focused more on on the desired achievements, you know, what, what we're trying to accomplish as opposed to conversations around billing rates. If we can get those types of arrangements in place and get relative probabilities assigned to that, all data-driven based on the firm's experience, then we can also agree on success fees. We can agree on triggers that make that particular business even more attractive to the firm as well. The point I'm trying to emphasize is that this is not designed to somehow eliminate the law firm model or undercut its profitability. In our experience, when we have good relationships with firms and, and interact this way, the firms are actually more profitable doing Cisco business than with their other clients because we have a a very crystal clear expectation of what we're trying to accomplish together. It's a great point. It all comes down to communication. The way to start the relationship is to say, hey, we will agree to work this way. We have the data to work this way. And when we start a project, you know, we're going in with certain assumptions. We all agree on those assumptions. And of course, if something changes, obviously we want the outcome to be the most favorable outcome for the client that might, of course, change some of the financial arrangement. Great to hear you say it because, of course, the assumption is that you would agree to it as long as they were communicating with you along the way. As a business person, I love the approach. I think it is the right approach. We hear a lot about in-house legal team members wanting to continue a relationship with an outside firm that they've worked with in the past and that they have a preference for a particular partner and or a particular firm. I'd love to hear from both of you, your experience on working with those lawyers within your organizations and getting them to be open to considering other lawyers, other firms. Jeff, do you want to take that on? I think one of the first steps really, and, and this goes to my prior point about really having a strong EQ as possible, is developing the relationships internally with the lawyers on the team so that they understand that you're coming to the table to to ultimately solve the same problem they are with the same objectives. Unfortunately, in-house, I don't think at most companies, the alignment of 
goals and performance reviews and things like that necessarily drive all of the right outcomes. I think most lawyers in-house are not measured on the extent to which they're minimizing spend. They're mostly geared towards focusing on quality outcomes and in many cases, quality outcomes on the most important things or on a, on a large set of things. And that behavior drives a certain mentality around what firms you want to hire, and what kinds of lawyers. But that's slowly starting to change as they get more pressure to be cost focused. And sometimes that pressure comes from the general counsel. Sometimes it comes from legal operations. So, you know, over time, we need to develop a relationship that we're, we're going to solve for them in the right way. But there's definitely a bit of friction there. I think ultimately, we also need to come to the table with alternatives that make sense and with an understanding of, of the problems at hand. If I try to go in and work with you know, the IP litigators on a matter and I don't understand the litigation process and specifically the litigation process around IP disputes, that's not helpful to me. So certainly being knowledgeable about the issues is critical. Having good firms and or more likely reliable and viable attorneys to bring to the conversation is critical. A lot of it is just a function of time. Uh, I've been at Yahoo now for about five and a half years, and I have to say the way we do things now is radically different than the way it was five and a half years ago. Some of that is a function of the fact that the industry has changed. Some of it is a function of the fact that five and a half years in, individuals on the hallway know who I am, and they know that I'm not going to undermine their ultimate objectives. And they also know that if I'm going to push for a different approach, on costs or firms that I'm not going to do that at the expense of, of measures that are critical to them. Those are some of the some of the ways that we try to approach it. Steve, is that kind of similar for you? Yes, absolutely. And there, there's nothing about this model of engaging service providers that is designed to diminish those relationships. In fact, as long as those relationships are being leveraged to the point that it results in increased communication and familiarity and the ability to openly discuss the outcomes that we're going for and pursuing, it's all upside as far as I'm concerned. Now, if the focus on relationship is simply an artifact of the current status where most in-house lawyers have spent some material portion of their career at a firm environment, and so they come in-house and and they expect to do business the same way they did in the firm, you know, there's opportunities to improve that and go beyond that. But our general counsel in particular, Mark Chandler, has been very forward-thinking in his approach, his approach to the allocation of work, deciding what we're going to do in-house versus the services that we require of our outside counsel. I think he would say that maintaining those relationships has been critical to his success. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Really should start the data-driven conversation about, again, what we're trying to achieve through the relationship. No, great points. And, you know, I do think that idea that technology has allowed both in-house legal departments as well as these firms to really better understand where they're spending their clients' money, where basically the expense is. I'd like to ask if either of you have a success story where you can highlight when a law firm or service provider, possibly an outsourced legal provider, has approached your firm and did a, a very strong job and either earning your business or even attempting to earn your business. Can either of you share a success story? I'll start with one, and it, it relates to our previous conversation. It's firms that have come in with a, a data-driven pitch, and that data extending beyond the immediate 
Cisco-specific engagement, but also to encompass the historical data that the firm has and use that information to teach us about what we should expect in an area that we don't have deep experience with simply as a matter of volume. And so I can think of a few instances where firms with really comprehensive pitches that all began with the question of what are we trying to accomplish and then find a data set to back up the firm's predictions about how they could perform. Most other pitches have been about platitude. That's just simply not enough to carry the day. Do you find today, let's say, from the percentage of firms that are coming in to look to secure some business with Cisco? So I would say most of the firms that come in to pitch business to Cisco have done their homework. They understand that's the type of pitch we expect to see, and they're starting to do that. But the firms that use the data effectively, the firms that have someone with an operational mindset, we're not going to be impressed by tickets to a basketball game, right? Most of us would rather spend that free time with our families. You know, we live in, a, in an aggressive environment, aggressive culture, a busy time. Time. Pitches that are data-driven, that are outcome-driven, are always the most successful for us. Thank you. I have to say it was one of those points that in my career as a sales leader, we always talked about that, that the relationship only matters when all other things are equal. And I used to guide my team consistently that the booze and tickets is for after you've secured the piece of business as a thank you way down the road after you've delivered. It's more relationship buildings. Thank you for saying that. Tune into episode 56 for the continuation of this insightful discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. 